Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. We're tracking the windows in your mind and the loot in Norman Jewison's 1968 heist flick, The Thomas Crown Affair. Let's start with the money. Well, I don't have it. No, what would you do if you did? We're in this together. You want it in. You're going to get 10%. So you earn your keep. Two million, six hundred thousand dollars in cash. Whose head are you after? Yours. Mine? Yours. <laughs> hmm. Let's play something else. Go. Andy, uh, Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, it's got the uh, the Stephen Queen. Uh, Stephen Queen. <laughs> the the Steve McQueen is in it. Stephen Queen. Right, we should just I... do everyone's names wrong. This has Stephen <laughs> Queen <laughs> and Faye McDunaway. Uh, I uh, so this is uh, we're still in our 1968 kick for the uh, rest of the year, and this one is it, it kicks off a new series that we're doing. Uh, of movies that are shorter than the movies we did on our last series. <laughs> is that the name of the, it? Should be the name <laughs> that of the series. Is, yes, you could probably add the, the running time of all four of these movies, and it's shorter <laughs> than Once Upon a Time in America. <laughs> yes, this uh, this series is much less intimidating uh, than the last series that we did, but we got through it and we feel great about it. And now we're talking about movies and their remakes. Uh, we're starting here with Thomas Crown Affair, 1968. Of course, the remake that we'll be talking about later in 1999. Uh, on this film, uh, Andy, what is your uh, relationship with this film and its relationship to uh, the time? I came to this film fairly late in the game, actually. I think I finally watched it when I knew they were making a remake. And mm -hmm. it piqued my curiosity, and I wanted to see it, and I rented it and checked it out. And I've always kind of enjoyed it. I think it's a, a fun movie. I like the heist. I like the relationship between McQueen and Dunaway. And I like the style that Jewison brings to it. Um, as far as tying it into the times, it's, uh, it's a trickier film to find a direct connection to the times. It's kind of a film about, uh, you know, a bank heist by a, a millionaire. And it's, you know, it's not kind of tying into the, uh, the, the tension going on in the sixties, uh, from the, you know, the war and all of that, but it does have that kind of jazzy, uh, loose feel, um, in the film filmmaking style that Jewison employs here. And I guess if anything, I would say that that gives a sense of kind of the period, um, of, you know, where this film takes place and how it kind of fits into the 60s, especially the filmmaking style, and especially the fantastic um, uh, multi-screen um, image that that uh, is employed throughout from the opening titles and through the robberies and the polo scene and all that sort of stuff. That is a really fantastic technique that Jewison employs in the film, and it, I think, to a certain extent, really helps kind of... Uh, pin to a certain extent kind of that jazzy filmmaking style that uh i think that there's a hint of kind of the way that it was born in the french new wave and then the way that it kind of comes through here i think uh is actually really nice and so i don't i wouldn't say it it pins it as a 1968 uh film but certainly there's a style to it that has a 60s vibe to it 
Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, you watch this movie and you think, oh, I saw this movie when Soderbergh aped it in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? I mean, it has a it, it's very much uh, uh, stylistically um, vintage. It's something that other filmmakers have have clearly taken from when you're talking about how the movie was made cinematically. It just has a look to it that you have seen before. And, um, you know, a lot of that comes uh, can be traced here. Uh, and to other films kind of of this period as they were experimenting with a lot of the technology that was changing in in how to actually put image on the screen, which is which is fascinating. Culturally, though, I think this film is almost more notable for the opportunities that it passed up in actually making any sort of statement about, as you say, the the uh, strife and conflict uh, going on around the world. Certainly the uh, uh, any sort of a deeper kind of implication of the merits of wealth in society. Uh, this this movie lives in the one percent, you know, and uh, we do see poverty in the film, but there is. I mean, it, only insofar as it exists, like nobody's really struggling because they don't have a lot of because they're not wealthy. They just exist and their cars aren't uh, Rolls Royces or Ferraris and they don't dune buggy up the Massachusetts coast. Uh, but yes, the, the poor are there. Um, and, and so it's a it's a film that just sort of exists in its own frivolity uh, and that celebrates that there's a that there's a really wealthy guy. I. I sort I, I like it. I like the style of it, and I certainly like Steve McQueen's portrayal of it. But I also think that's kind of where the movie, uh, where where it dates itself. That there are much deeper arguments or discussions going on right now, um, in in film, even the fun ones. Uh, that this film was just sort of uh, too early to have. I think, like, not that I'm faulting Norman Jewison or uh, you know uh, Alan Trussman, uh, screenwriter, for not having a deep cultural conversation, but just I think it would have it would look different today, and I look forward to talking more about that later. Certainly, I, and but that's not to say that every movie needs to be that connected to the social zeitgeist and everything that's happening and, and making a statement. I think it's fine it to have. Doesn't. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's fine to have a fun film, and and I think they do a good job with it. Uh, now you're right. I think there is an element to what you're saying that does reflect on how people saw the film at the time and might still see it today. It's not like this is one that's constantly getting re-released or anything. But even at the time when it came out, I mean, Roger Ebert said it's possibly the most underplotted, underwritten, overphotographed film of the year, which is not to say it isn't great to look at. It is. And I think that there's a little bit of a point to that. I don't completely agree with him. I think it's it's more than just fun to look at. Um, I, I think it's just it is a fun film, um, but it does end up feeling like there's a little more style over substance. But for me, it, that also kind of ties to like the stuff that, uh, you know, other filmmakers do with these kind of heist movies. I mean, look at Soderbergh, look at at, uh, you know, those types of films. Sometimes it's just fun to just make a stylish film and just have fun with it. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I, and so then on the merits of this film and of the heist, uh, you know, how well does it hold up? The heist itself is actually a, uh, I mean, I guess it's a pretty chunky portion of the, of the open. Um, it's done in a really fun way. And it, uh, again, they employ that, um, multi image technique throughout to allow us to see everything that's going on. I think, 
um, the actual robbery itself, I saw some statistic about it's only like three minutes of screen time, like the actual robbery, uh, or maybe it's a little more than that, but somewhere around there. But it's actually like if you take all the shots apart and you put it all out, it's actually about 15 minutes of of straight uh, film the way that mm-hmm. the story would have been uh, unfolding. And so by playing with the heist and letting us kind of see it where everything's going on at the same time, um, but doing it in a way where uh, sometimes images would blur a little bit, it really allows you to kind of focus. And I found it really easy to follow, but really exciting to kind of see the heist play out that way. I thought it was a, a really fresh and original take on a heist. I did too. I, I really enjoy it. And, and that first, you know, uh, 26 minutes, right? That's, that's after the heist and there's all the interstitial stuff and there's cops and all that kind of stuff. But by the time, uh, Crown pulls into his house and goes into his house and sits down on his couch, he hits the driveway right about 26 minutes. And that, that's a long stretch of film. Uh, and I think they actually do a great job of setting up the world through the heist, right? They don't tell us, uh, they, they don't give us a lot early on. And uh, they expect, I think, a lot of us in the, that first 25-minute uh, stretch to just start tracking. You you need to start tracking the fact that in our very first sequence, we have our, you know, some, uh, you know, invisible hand is is starting to hire people who don't know who he is to take part in the heist at some point in the future. And, and I think all of that, that skeleton of the heist is really cool that the building a team starts at, at minute zero. Uh, I, I have a lot of fun with that. In fact, I think that the heist is really one of the more interesting heists of the heist movies we've seen uh the way it's portrayed on screen the rest of the movie then unravels in two ways one um you know we have the the kind of criminal pursuit and two we have the relationship pursuit between um uh thomas crown and vicky anderson played by faye dunaway and uh, I, you know, I, I can see where Ebert would say this was underwritten. Uh, I, I really struggle as much as I love Dunaway in this film. And I th- I actually really enjoy her character, uh, alongside Steve McQueen and trying to keep up with the weird relationship mechanics that they're, you know, trying to play with here. I think the actual criminal pursuit is really thin. I just don't buy it. Uh, and, and there is a particular scene with, uh, you know, the police officer, the detective, uh, Eddie and uh, Vicky in the park where they just magically seem to understand everything that was going on in the film without giving the audience any chance to kind of ride along. And um, I, I think that sort of gift of the heavens of, uh, you know, here's here's the answer to the heist. I get it now with no trail is is really where this this film suffers it's hard to kind of replay it which is one of the things we constantly talk about how well can you keep up as a member of the audience yeah it's uh, it's it a little it's a little frustrating and but i get what they were doing um it's the story isn't about solving the case you know i, I and that is probably too fast too unbelievable and unfortunate the way that that scene plays out because the story requires that Vicky figures it out quickly because the story is really about this uh, kind of cat and mouse game that she plays with uh, Steve McQueen through the rest of the film. So she has to get in touch with him right away um, so that that can happen. 
Um, it's yeah. And, and I, I guess it's one of those things where you just got to kind of buy into that moment and move past it so that you can get to all of the rest of it. And you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's a little thin, but I guess for me, this, it really falls to, um, the, the chemistry between Dunaway and McQueen and watching the pair of them, um, just the way that they interact and the conversations they have, I think, ends up being a lot of fun, even if some of the lines and some of the the writing is a little, um, uh, I, I don't want to say inert, but maybe it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily great writing. Um, but I still, I still just love their chemistry. And like, right from the first scene when she reveals that she's investigating him and she just flat out tells him, yeah, I'm investigating you. And they yeah. have that exchange. It's fun. There's this flirtation that goes along with all of it that I have a lot of fun with, even if I guess you could say these are really immoral characters that were following um, both of them. That is one of the more interesting angles for me is her role and and kind of Eddie's role that, it, you know, as they're, you know, working under the auspices of investigating as a function of the insurance company. And so they are out from under the thumb of, of legal well, obligations. She is. she is. That's right. Right. That's what I mean. So she she's out from under that sort of thumb of legal obligation and uh, can pretty much do whatever her character would allow her to do her sort of moral character. And she's very open about the fact that she's in it for the money. Uh, and it turns out she's and I think that's an interesting stand. And I think that that her position um, is, you know, as she becomes more and more emotionally compromised in her, uh, you know, her relationship with him, um, it it's interesting to watch her navigate that as he's trying to navigate out from under, you know, these supposed IRS, you know, loopholes that she's exercising against him. So that part I really like. I have a hard time letting go of the fact that that the uh, investigation is as kind of weak as it is, um, because I, I don't know, for this movie, I compare the relationship stuff to a movie like Out of Sight, you know, which I think did it very, very well. Um, the, the, you know, cop versus criminal, um, relationship, they come together and they have to somehow navigate their, um, their own archetypes. And, and I think they did it very well. This movie to me is, is not as strong in that area. And, um, and so I, you know, it's, it's kind of a middling, it, it ends up being kind of middling for me in that, in that regard. I, I don't know. I get it. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I and because and, I see the the same problems. I think uh, the out of sight uh, comparison is is a great one, actually, because that one is handled extremely well. But it's also like a film from the 90s. And I think that it had 30 more years of of filmmaking storytelling to kind of put behind it. And of course, Soderbergh right. as well. Um, it also the, had Elmore Leonard like it had an incredible book behind it, you know? Yeah, I think it had a lot of stuff going for it. This was uh, crafted by a uh, a lawyer, uh, <laughs> Alan Trustman, who uh, he was a lawyer and he actually worked in this building across from the First National Bank of Boston. And he kind of uh, he knew how the bank ran and all that sort of stuff. And he came up with this whole story of this robbery and came up with this script and um it i mean it was a good enough script to uh uh to sell and to get made um and i mean even you know he did rewrites when when they signed mcqueen on and uh mcqueen uh, loved it so much he said i don't know how but the son of a bitch knows me 
uh, you know, somehow Trussman seemed to kind of get a grasp of who McQueen was. But I still think that perhaps some of the the failings of the script itself come from the fact that he was coming at it from, you know, kind of outside of the world of, of writing and didn't have as as fine tuned a, a a grasp on the storytelling tools he needed to really flesh it out and give a little more meat that um, clearly some people are looking for with this. Well, it's funny about Trussman too that he ended up having an amazing like five year career as an as an attorney, <laughs> right, and then screenwriter to to start with this film with Steve McQueen yep. to have such a relationship with McQueen to go on to immediately get Bullet produced, which right. he also wrote, and then the uh, sequel to In the Heat of the Night, uh, they call me Mister Tibbs uh, in nineteen seventy. Uh, and then, you know, he wrote some other stuff in 1973, Lady Ice and Hit. Uh, I'm not familiar with those. Uh, and then he's got just, you know, three other uh, titles in, in uh, uh, the, uh, again, Crime and Passion, that he was uncredited. The Next Man I'd, I've Never Seen. And then Fallen Angels on television, of course, a story credit on the 1999 Thomas Crown Affair. And that's it. Uh, that That is for you know many only screenwriters that's an amazing career that this guy had uh and uh also he's an attorney so <laughs> yeah right what an, what an amazing uh amazing little uh sort of diversion uh he was able to put together here yeah In that regard, it's I, great. I think yeah i think he clearly has some panache with the way that he puts these characters together even if the story itself might end up being a little weak but it again it's one of those things where I, I feel like I end up kind of just having fun with it because I enjoy these characters, but I can totally see the point, you know, that you're making about it needing a little more meat on its bones. You know what it really needs is uh, it needs more Deadpool style fourth wall breaks. You know, I just needed at some point Steve McQueen to look at the camera and say, now that's just lazy writing. Like that would have really <laughs> like at least let's hang a lantern on it and then we can move on. Uh, so. Uh, anyway, can we talk about oh. the love story uh, real quick? Yes. Because that's yeah. that's important because we have it's, erotic It's about chess. the love story, yeah. It's yeah. erotic chess, Andy. Oh, it is. That's what we need more. And uh, believe me, from in my book, this is a lock. Something around erotic board games has got to be a lock for the Saturday matinee. Something that people choose <laughs> this week. Most Lost erotic powers board will games end up being on there. The most right, obvious right. spoof of this scene. <laughs> uh, this is actually a really interesting sequence. Uh, the uh, the erotic chess match. Uh, they first of all, it it's it reminded me weirdly of uh, the uh, Sergio Leone disgusting eating scene. If they'd had food, this was shot that way. Um, so this was much more to my liking because there was no food, so we didn't have to deal with all the slobbering. Uh, but that's what we get here is, but with chess pieces, uh, I, I thought it was actually lovely, wonderful macro shots of the chessboard, really interesting looking chess pieces, very classic. The board was really beautifully textured and old and weathered, you know, it, it, it didn't fit the aesthetic of the rest of his place and therefore it fit perfectly you could tell that this was something that was really important to him it looked well used something in the family maybe they even went so far as to make the chess match itself uh, a, a replay of a real game from 1898 uh the game between uh, a match between gustav zeisel and walter von walthoven uh, and so uh, mcqueen and dunaway were actually playing chess 
Uh, very, very sexy chess. Oh, it is very sexy chess. Uh, apparently in the Chicago Tribune uh, review at the time uh, that this was outed as one of the longest kisses in film history, but they didn't cite their source. So, of course, I went looking for long kisses in film. Another lock for the Saturday matinee uh, and found that this was not the longest one. The longest was you're in the army now at three minutes and six seconds, which was that was from, you're in the army. Now. I don't even I don't have a date for when that was out. You remember when that came out? Nineteen forty one. And then uh, now Elena Undone in 2010 has a three minute and 24 second kiss. And I remember um, Pee Wee Big Top Pee Wee had a fairly long kiss when, <laughs> when that movie came out of all things. I didn't time this kiss. How long was the kiss in this one? Uh, you know, I didn't time it either. And that's, yeah, I, yeah I sh- we should time it. We should. Well, I'm I, actually getting on long kiss for Big Top Pee Wee. Longkiss.com? Is that where you're looking? Is that such a thing? <laughs> no, I should Are you telling me that? Because if it's not a <laughs> thing, then we should do it. Uh, it looks like Big Top Pee Wee was 229. Okay. Um, okay. It looks uh, like, yes, according sorry. to IMDb, it is a one-minute kissing sequence between the two leads, and it took eight hours to film over a number of days. So it's so nowhere near minute, the longest kiss. Nowhere near the longest kiss, but at the time, right, the Pee-wee was after this movie. So uh, Yes, yes. The um, the kiss itself, though, uh, the, the what they did to get this is they put Haskell Wexler, the DP, on a skateboard. They wrapped him in like a, a, a black cloth. And then they just pushed him in circles around these two as they kissed. (laughs) It was a very loose uh, kind of jazzy film with a loose jazzy shooting style. And they were just kind of winging it and playing around doing all sorts of crazy things. And that's what they wanted to do for this. And and I guess the initial um, poster that they came up with had an image of the kiss on it. And initially the uh, the company said it was it was too sexy. And they could not release it with that poster. Now, I, I guess they ended up doing it because all the posters I see now include the kiss. But at the initial conversations, they said, nope, too sexy. Too much sexy on that poster. Too much sexy poster. <laughs> uh, it's a very sexy scene. And man, Faye Dunaway just, uh, you know, she owns it. Like she just dominates the sequence. And I, I really like that because, you know, McQueen we've we've used we're used to seeing him in such rugged roles and so it you know it's interesting to see him here first we're already adjusting to the fact that he's in a suit right it's a different kind of of kind of dominating or yeah. chewing up this scenery. is not the blue class uh, yeah. type that we've usually seen him um playing at right right so we're already kind of having to change our expectation of of who steve mcqueen is in this in in thomas crown and then to see him like it's almost comedy. Like if he pushed it any further, it would be laugh out loud sequence, like Austin Powers type kind of comedy. Watching him react to and sweat uh, under the um, kind of visuals that Faye Dunaway is is creating here, as she's sort of caressing her own shoulder with her long nails and like the the way they shoot. I mean, she just dominates the scene and the film. I mean, she owns everything yeah. that she does here. She's so good. Uh, so sexy. She just plays it so uh, brilliantly and just all of her little movements, whether it's the way she grabs the door 
and leans on the doorknob or mm-hmm. the way she just kind of um, glances up and, and, and looks at, at McQueen. I mean, she really is just dominating her role and it's just amazing to, to see what she's doing here. And this scene just like the way that they kind of play all of that. I mean, you're right. It's, it's so incredibly sexy, all the shots, all the moves, all the cuts, everything works really nicely. There's one shot of McQueen where he does look at her or he's looking at the pieces and he kind of bites his lip. Mm-hmm. And that's like the one time I'm like, that's, that's not the shot that should have been in there. Cause all of a sudden <laughs> it's bordering on that comedy. I almost wanted to laugh at that one shot. Right. <laughs> But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise they do a great job. <laughs> but it's it's a great scene, and uh, but and I guess to your question that you initially started this with, um, is the love story believable? Do we like this love story? Do we care about these two? It's it's an interesting um, thing to ask because these are characters that are kind of uh, despicable. You know, he's essentially a a rich millionaire who's so bored that you know he's making these silly bets when he's golfing on sunday and his friend asks him he's like that's a that's a sucker bet he says well what else can we do on sunday that says everything about what kind of guy we're we're getting here um but and he's basically robbing the bank because he just wants to stick it to the insurance company meanwhile she's working for the insurance company but she's so immoral that she will uh go so far as to uh kidnap a child in order to get a confession out of somebody it speaks really highly to these two and and it's interesting but because it's Faye Dunaway because it's Steve McQueen there's an element of likability with them already and when we see them on screen and we see that kind of that romance between the two I think there's an element about it that we're still drawn to Um, now the big question is by the time we get to the ending and we find out that not only has has um, she uh, proven herself as the uh, you know the the insurance person who is going to bail on love, um, she turns him in and she uh, basically sets him up to catch him. But he does the same thing, and he mm-hmm. he sets her up uh, so that he can make his getaway. And it's interesting because this is like the one point where these two people probably are finding the right match for for themselves where they could fall in love and be happy but because they do what they do they are more willing to uh to go along with that and and bail on love and i actually think it's a really cynical ending and if anything that might be an interesting element that kind of came out of the 60s is this idea of a love story that ends so cynically yeah, that's a great point uh, that it, it ends cynically. It ends unresolved on both of the threads that we've been following for the last hour and 40 whatever minutes. Uh, it, it ends almost on a joke, right? When she reads that note and it says, hey, bring the money, right? <laughs> right? Essentially saying, I know you're going to get this because you're going to find it and I'm on a plane, uh, but you should meet me. And why don't you bring the money? And I think that's a that, that was a, a great way to, to end it, even though it was kind of a sucker punch for for the narrative of the story. And I thought it, I, I thought that part uh, generally worked. Um, you know, if, if, as you say, if you can let go of the um, sort of the, the underwritten nature of the heist part or of the, the investigation, then I think this is a nice way to resolve it. I think it's the perfect way to resolve it. I just love the ending. I love the, the uh, over the top 
um, uh, melodramatic, uh, tragic music that we have that Michelle Legrand is playing with the piano and the climbing the scales up and down the <laughs> piano. And it's just so big. And, and her face near tears as she realizes yeah. what's going on. And he's on the plane and, and it's just like, it's, it's got this great emotional swell. And I think it's actually a perfect ending for the film. And that might be one of the reasons that I end up really enjoying the film is because the way that it ends, I think, is just such a great kind of a surprise to see it ending this way. You kind of keep wondering, are they going to find a way to make this a happy love story? Yeah. Nope. And they, they, <laughs> they never fall prey to that. And I, I think that's a, that's a, nice, a nice touch uh, in this movie. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about getting it made? Well, we talked a little bit about uh, the screenwriter, about Alan Trustman and how he came up with the idea and and all of that. Uh, it did go to uh, Norman Jewison. He had uh, finished In the Heat of the Night, which was a big success for United Artists, and they wanted him to do another movie. And, uh, you know, this is the script that uh, I think it was uh, uh, the Mirish Company had uh, had. Um, purchased the rights from Trussman and they uh, and they gave it to him and, and he liked it and said sure and because he just did so well within the heat of the night they uh, kind of said well here have, here's some money go make a movie and uh, he went and made it and it was kind of fun. He the the initial um, concept of the script that Trussman had was uh, was with Sean Connery playing the character, but um, neither Walter Mirisch nor Norman Jewison really felt that that was right. And they actually um, wanted Steve McQueen. And and that's why Trussman went and kind of reworked the script. I think he watched like a whole bunch of um, McQueen's movies to really get a sense of him and rewrite the script. And as far as Faye Dunaway, he was trying to, uh, uh, Jewison was trying to find the right person to play the part. And he was talking to one of his buddies, Arthur Penn, who at the time was making Bonnie and Clyde. And, and he was telling uh, Norman about uh, Faye Dunaway and let her see some of the, the dailies. And, uh, and he just felt that she'd be perfect in the role and brought her on board to, uh, to play uh, opposite McQueen. And I think it ended up being a really, fantastic choice because they just have some amazing chemistry on screen plus i mean faye dunaway looks great in all those crazy 60s outfits oh the hats the hats andy <laughs> they were so great uh, the faye dunaway in this movie is enough to bring back hats we need to have more hats here here you know it's funny watching her introduction when she's like walking through the airport and you got all those different shots of her as she's walking in that fantastic oh yeah giant hat it made me it was like flashbacks to Once Upon a Time in America when we have Danny Aiello's introduction and every time that he turns, the camera's <laughs> cutting to him and it's just, it was so fantastic. And it just, it felt like this type of character. <laughs> it totally did. Uh, another element that uh, a Jewison really wanted to do with this film is film in Boston. Um, I, you know, he says that this was the first like big project to be filmed in Boston. I don't know if that's true, but... Uh, yeah, the director is saying it, so I'm assuming there's some credence to it. I know they they filmed in um, the bank, and they filmed just all over the place in Boston. And uh, it, I mean, it, you know, he worked with with the mayor and everybody to try to get access to a lot of different places and buildings and everything. So uh, I think there's some credence to it, and it just it really photographs the city really nicely. There's a lot of 
great shots all over the place in Boston. The other interesting thing about the backstory with this is uh, just kind of building into how this film came to end up having these uh, multiple images on screen. Um, Jewison had uh, seen a screening of this uh, short film directed by Christopher Chapman called A Place to Stand at the at the World Expo in Montreal in 1967. And in that film, um, which I think is available, I think we probably put it in the show notes, um, it's, it's this, you know, kind of journey uh, around the world where you're seeing lots of different interesting images of people and places. And it's basically like this, where a lot of different images on the screen. And he was just crazy for it. Now, oddly enough, Steve McQueen also had seen the the same short in a screening out in California. And when the two of them came together and they were talking about this technique, it was like, you know, they both had the, I, this, this, they both had seen it. And because of that connection, they're like, we have to find a way to do this. And um, interestingly enough, uh, Jewison uh, had been using Hal Ashby, who we talked about uh, with being there uh, as far as directing that one. Before he was directing, he was editing, and Norman Jewison was one of the guys he was editing with. And he actually knew this guy, Pablo Ferro, who we have also talked about on the show before because he was an amazing, amazing uh, title designer. I think we've talked about him with um, Dr. Strangelove. He did Bullet. He did oh, no, uh, the Adams family. He did Men in yeah. Black. Um, you know, he's a, a guy who's done quite a few uh, interesting title sequences. He he did the he did LA Confidential. We talked about that on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, Beetlejuice, um, a lot of Hal Ashby's stuff, like Harold and Maude. So anyway, he's he's a fantastic title designer. And um, initially, um, they're going to have him do the titles. But um, uh, Hal Ashby was talking to Norman about how he was playing around with this technique, and um, and because of the, having seen that short film, they brought him on to help with the polo scene because they wanted to find a, a way to kind of spice that up because it was really long, it was really boring, and so uh, he played around with it and came up with this really exciting uh, polo scene. And uh, after that, then it's just like, well, let's see where else we can throw it in here. And it became kind of the core element of the film. And it's I, I think it's, it makes this film really vibrant and alive. I love it. I do, too. Uh, you mentioned A Place to Stand. It is added to the show notes. Thanks very much to the Archives of Ontario. Uh, and they put that in there. If it's anything like any other movie that we put in the link on YouTube, you should watch it really, really quick. Because uh, it'll probably <laughs> the Ontario will close and it will go out and, and it'll be pulled. So there you go. Well, you know what, Pete? It's actually, there is a link for it also in the um, art of the title. Yes, and I have this. the link. If the art of the title is already in the show notes. Right, but I mean, uh, the link, you, you, essay, can, so. you can just, there's a window within that link of art of the title that actually has the it. A Place to Stand link, and you can watch that. That's See, it was already there the whole time. Yeah. It was calling from inside the house. <laughs> Um, okay, what else do we need to talk about here? Just throw in there that, of course, uh, this is Steve McQueen, and we have talked about him quite a number of times, and we know this is a guy who likes vehicles, 
And so, of course, he did get to uh, ride around in a dune buggy. And apparently, according to Norman Jewison, he actually, Stephen Queen and all his buddies, actually put this dune buggy together as well. Yeah, uh, that's 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 what I understand, that this was this ended up being. Well, I don't know. Did he walk away with this car, too? Or did he already I, I didn't hear have that, it? But... Like, he built it. It was his car. Oh, I didn't uh, hear that. I just heard he... He and his buddies put it together and then so that he could drive it around. But I don't know That's if it was his. Or... Well, it's the Myers Manx, which is actually a hopped up Chevy Corvair on a Volkswagen Beetle frame. Uh, and it looked like a whole lot of fun to drive around. He also has Rolls Royce. Uh, and I don't know which which one that was, but, you know, Rolls Royce, whatever. Rolls Royce don't, don't do anything for me. A dime a dozen. They don't. Do, they do little for me. Uh, but Hurt Faye Dunaway's car, uh, the the car that she has seen near, uh, was the first of ten produ- uh, the Ferrari two seventy five GTB four Nart Spiders. I don't know what the Nart part is. I'm not much of a car guy, but uh, it was one of the most valuable Ferrari road cars of all time. Norman Jewison actually owned it. Oh, <laughs> that was his car. It was his car. I see. Yes. Excellent. Yes, well, yes, that was yes. A nice little, uh, nice little uh, cameo of Normie's car. And I was just uh, looking up that car. It looks like, uh, well, NART is short for North American Racing Team. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Oh, listen to me. Oh, <laughs> well, of yes. Course I it was. Of that course now. it was. Yeah. There was a uh, Ferrari NART Spider. That was apparently sold in 2013 for 27.5 million. More than my Hyundai. You should have. Uh, they they should have held on to it. I wonder if Norman still has it, and he could have. Right. Uh, wow. We could fund a whole new movie with that. <laughs> a whole new movie. Uh, a couple other interesting people in here. It was really fun to see Yafet Kodo in this. Uh, in this movie i did not know he was in this movie yeah i think it was his first movie what a young lad he was back in the day i, I shouldn't say his first movie but his first uh bigger role in a film yeah. he had done some tv and then he had a, a tiny part in a 1964 film nothing but a man but uh and not that this is a big part <laughs> but it's no not a big part but very familiar now very memorable too i just yes, enjoy uh, yes. in the beginning here uh, fun to see Jack Weston as Irwin. Uh, his wife uh, was was the thinker. Boy, I tell you, what is up with that wife? Like, what's her motivation? Don't know. <laughs> is she like really moral and just upset to find out that her husband was involved in all of this? Or is she just after the $25,000 reward? <laughs> well, I think just that one scene, I think that was pretty telling. Like, she already hated him yeah right? right they were already not having a very good and so when she found the opportunity like that sequence we get to see her come to terms with the fact that her marriage is over and this is the way she's going to end it yeah she's going to send him to jail that'll you know? do it that'll do it that'll do pig <laughs> that'll do uh, oh my so uh, fun cast. Anybody else specifically you want to talk about? You know, Paul Sorry. Burke, I, I uh, just I mean, he's one of those faces that uh, feels like uh, he's born to be a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think he went uh, or before this, he was in Naked City as a police officer. So go figure. He's a guy who was in a lot of TV like he was in uh, uh, Dynasty and Columbo and Cagney and Lacey and Magnum P.I., Santa Barbara, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat. Hawaii Five-0, Trapper John MD. I mean, you know, you go through his career and it's just 
full of TV work. That's probably why he's so familiar. He just seems like one yeah. of those faces that you've probably seen a lot of times. I uh, I was never much of a twelve o'clock high guy, uh, but he was in he was a regular in that series. What do you think of uh, good old Haskell Wexler? Well, I, you know when I was first watching, so Haskell Wexler, Wexler did the uh, camera, right. and. Um, you know, when I was first watching it, I would, I'd kind of written the, um, you know, a lot of the split screen off to him. Uh, and so, you know, knowing how much kind of reshuffling they ended up having to do, how much they, they didn't never intended to drop into this, this film, I think it was an, it, it was kind of a reset of my expectation of the film. I really like the work that he did here. And I, I'm a big fan of, Haskell Wexler's other work. I mean, he's, you know, we've already talked about um, uh, another film in the series that he did. Uh, they call me Mr. Tibbs. He did In the Heat of the Night. He was a cinematographer between, uh, behind In the Heat of the Night and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, those are some of his very uh, big pieces, but um, he's a, an incredibly prolific cinematographer. Uh, and and uh, I, I think this was a a solid showcase of of his work. It's really fun. Like you talk about, you you've said a number of times, it has this really sort of jazzy feel to it. I think it does, right? It's that improvisational kind of feeling that, it, especially when you get the during the heist itself, and they have the the smoke, uh, uh you know, those military right, the, smoke, yeah, not grenades, flare. the flares, it's like yeah, the flares, like the, yeah. The, the, Right. Um, they did some really fun things in and around the the bank and what they were going to do uh, or and how they moved the camera in and around the uh, the heist and moving these people around that, that you know, only come into contact one, with one another in passing. Like, I, I think they just handled that really artfully. And I mean, we already talked about the chess scene. I mean, look at the way that that was shot. Yeah. I mean, just some amazing shots, the overheads, the close ups. I mean, he. I think had an incredible handle on the way to play with the camera and move the camera. There was one shot that struck me um, as I was watching it that I just was like, what a fun way to shoot this where it's, it's Eddie and uh, uh, Faye's character walking. Uh, I don't know. I want to say that they're by the airport or something. I can't remember where they are, but um, they're walking on a sidewalk. And as they're walking, the camera pans over to the reflections in the glass and finishes the scene playing out with their reflections and it's you know it's just an interesting loose way to do it and you know not everything is motivated but kind of like the film it just feels like the whole thing is loose and fun and and it ends up working because that kind of creates this world that we're in yeah i think so too i mean you know i i look at the the golf sequence you know when he's down in the in the sand right uh and there there's this great shot right across the green like we're at the green and we're just looking at uh mcqueen's eyes as he's staring at the hole trying to get himself out of the sand and and it's one of those sequences that stood out to me because it has the opportunity of being a hero shot if you raise the camera a foot you get the same kind of grass thing but you actually see his whole head uh, but they didn't give us his whole head. They gave us just the top of his head and his eyes. And uh, it, it, it's just much more fun. And that scene is supposed to be frivolous and fun. It's supposed to be like, look at this idiot. Like he has nothing else to do uh, but, you know, gamble uh, extravagantly on a stupid golf wedge. <laughs> right. And I, I already mentioned Michelle Legrand. I mean, I think the music is fantastic, the way that it's up and down and all over the place. It just has that great French new wave sort of feel. Um, but then there's the two songs, you know, The Windmills of Your Mind, which Noel 
which Noel Harrison sings. Uh, Noel's the son of Rex. Uh, it feels very 60s and a little dated, but I really get it stuck in my head every time I watch this movie. Um, and then, of course, there's the His Eyes, Her Eyes song that uh, Legrand himself is singing. What'd you so, think of that one? I like it too. I end up singing that one all the time, and my wife is really tired of me singing it to her. <laughs> That's where we are with Windmills of Your Mind. I like Windmills of Your Mind better because, you know, it's the it, it, first of all, it's the opening of the film. It's over the opening credits, and the, I think it works really well as, as kind of completing the the overall visual. Um, his Eyes, Her Eyes, I find a little bit distracting in the film just because I prefer score. Uh, and I like the music so much, but yeah. it, it always feels a little bit like raindrops are falling on my head in, in Butch Cassidy uh, <laughs> to me. So that's an interesting know. comparison. I will say the, the, the instrumental of his eyes, her eyes, the way that it's played during the chess scene is a really sexy version of that yeah. track. I just love the way that they played that one. It worked really nicely. It needs to be a sexy, sexy track, Andy, because it does. Sexy, it really does. Sexy, sexy jazz. <laughs> How to do an award season? Ah, uh, the Thomas Crown Affair. This, uh, you know, it's it's a genre movie, but it doesn't mean it's not going to get any nominations. Um, and mostly for the music. This was uh, a big thing with this film at the time. You know, it, it was getting a lot of nominations, a lot of recognition for that. The song, The Windmills of Your Mind, actually, won uh, Best original song uh, for Michelle Legrand, along with Alan Bergman and Marilyn Bergman, who wrote the lyrics. And Michelle himself was nominated for Best uh, Original Score, not a musical. Um, however, he didn't win. It uh, That went to The Shoes of the Fisherman by Alex North. And I feel like we've probably talked about that in uh, one of our other episodes, because I feel like I've mentioned that before. And was like, I have no idea what that movie is. Uh, I think so, too. I, we should probably know what that film was because, A, 1968. B, are you kidding me? Laurence Olivier and Anthony Quinn uh, feels like a movie we should have known. But, you know, what are you going to do, Oscar? Yeah. And as far as the actual best song, um, you know, I feel like we probably talked about this uh, when we talked about Funny Girl. But the songs that were nominated were The Windmills of Your Mind, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Star, Buona Sera, Mrs. Campbell, and Funny Girl. How do you feel about uh, this film winning? Do you feel like it worked? No, I don't. This is a good song, but I, you know, I look at a song like Funny Girl. Uh, I just sort of feel like that's a that's a better one. And I would say the same thing about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I I'm right with you on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I I totally agree, and I think that probably didn't win because of the uh, genre with all those other ones but i i don't think windmills of your mind is the winner it's the legit winner although of the song i mean i haven't heard star and i haven't heard buona sera mrs campbell um but of those three chitty chitty bang bang and the windmills of your mind are the two that i could sing without having like a reference point funny mm. girl i can't remember the song but you could if you heard it what you're saying it, oh uh, no uh, yeah i mean it, it's i i would recognize it once he played it but it's i i think that there's always something about the longe longevity of a track if it's something that you can just like come to right away yeah for me yeah, that's why Chitty Chitty bang bang just would take it because it's it's so incredibly memorable 
It was a you know, it was a great score and, and a great Jim movie. Carrey does and- a great job of singing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, back to the awards. Yes, uh, it, it, you know, again, like I said, the music, um, it, the original song "Windmills of Your Mind" won at the Golden Globes. The score was nominated. Uh, Michelle Grand was nominated for the Anthony Asquith Award for film music at the BAFTAs. And then at the Laurel Awards, um, it came in fifth place for uh, action drama, as did Steve McQueen, who came in fifth place uh, for male dramatic performances. I didn't know that they gave places for. I didn't either. That's the Golden Laurel Awards. Yeah, pretty interesting. At the sixth place, they just hand out participation ribbons. (laughs) Right. He Steve McQueen lost to. uh, the winner was Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night. And then, uh, uh, obviously, they they weren't, th- uh, they had yet to see Ducky Sucker. So, uh, but <laughs> The Heat of the Night Rod won. Rod Steiger accepted the award after peeing <laughs> on some ants in the alley. Inspired. Uh, right. Uh, Sidney Poitier also was nominated. Paul Newman was nominated for Cool Hand Luke. And then uh, fourth place was uh, Spencer Tracy. Guess who's coming to dinner? And uh, this was fifth place. Cool hand Luke, Andy. Mm-hmm. No, nobody eats 50 eggs. That was a nice pick this weekend. I just want to throw That's that back to you. Nice pick on the yeah. sat map this week. How did it do at the box office? Well, Jewison's follow-up to In the Heat of the Night was put together with a budget of $4.3 million, or $29.7 million in today's dollars. The movie was released in the heat of the summer. On June nineteenth, I'll see what I did there. I on see June what 19th, you did there. Yeah, no, I was going to opposite that go. the Green Berets and the Lost Continent. The movie went on to make fourteen million or ninety six point nine million in today's dollars and landed in the nineteenth spot of the top twenty grossing films of the year, just ahead of The Detective. Actually, that gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of six hundred fifty eight thousand dollars. Pretty solid spot for Jewison. Pretty solid spot indeed. A fine, uh, if flawed, film. Uh, and I, I think it's really fun. It makes me all that much more uh, excited to watch uh, the film next week. Um, Indeed. And, and so I think with that, Andy, we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've done on this show uh, in, in a fine rank ordered list. Uh, if you swipe over in your show notes, you can tap on the word flick chart. It should take you straight to this film where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up against ours. First up, we have the Thomas Crown Affair or Fat City. I would go to Fat, Fat City, City for a more complex film that has some really interesting characters. But I feel like the breeze of watching the Thomas Crown Affair is going to push it over the top for me. So I'm going to pick that one. Yeah, I'll go with uh, I'll go with Thomas Crown. With a little Tommy. Thomas yeah. Crown Affair or Fargo? Fargo. Fargo for me. The Thomas Crown Affair or Mother? Mother. Yeah, I'll say Mother. Mother. The Thomas Not Crown Affair mother. or... <laughs> <laughs> the Thomas Crown Affair or Dark City? Dark City. <sighs> Dark City, yeah. That was not Crown worth a sigh. That was, was too much. Was that was too dramatic. Ponderousness. No, you, that didn't even deserve to be pondered. That was oh, instantaneous wow. Dark wow. City. Wow. The Thomas Crown Affair or High Noon? That deserves a sigh. I, before I rewatched High Noon, I probably would have picked that, but now I'm going to pick yeah. the Thomas Crown Affair. I'm going to do what you said. <laughs> the Thomas Crown Affair or the Lavender Hill Mob? 
uh, now it's breezy against breezy. I'm going to go with Thomas Crown Affair, though. Really? Yep. Are you sure? Yep. Real, real sure? Uh-huh. Real, real, Alec, real sure. Alec actually. Guinness, man. Alec I Guinness. Know. I know. It's a fun movie. It is I'm a gonna breeze. I'm going to go Lavender Hill Mob. Okay. All right. Here, here we go. go. One, One, two, three, three rock. Oh. Whew. There you Man, go. I feel like I just, I'm protecting you with that win. Uh, they're both breezy, easy movies. <laughs> There's nothing to protect. Agree to disagree. The Thomas Crown Affair or The Departed. Oh, dear. I'm going to say The Departed. Okay, The Departed. You're right. The Thomas Crown Affair or Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Oh, yeah. The Thomas Crown Affair or Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Say Thomas Crown Affair. (laughs) Thomas Crown. Not that I didn't love Robert Donat in that film. Well, that lands the Thomas Crown Affair 1968 at number 177 on our chart. That's 177 out of 379. We're getting close to that 400 mark, Pete. I know. It's coming. How did uh, this do on your own list? This ended up landing at 1,025 out of 4,068, 4, which is about a 75% uh, uh, spot. So That's, uh, That feels about right. I, I, I think I could have predicted that. For me, it's at 319 out of 1,047, uh, or about 70%, uh, which also feels about right. Uh, I think I am less forgiving about some of the underwritten pieces uh, than, than you, but not by much. If I'm to go by the algorithm, uh, this uh, flick chart is indicating that I should say that this is a three and a half star movie on letterbox.com slash the next reel. I'm a little bit torn. My gut's telling me, yeah, I think it's about a three and a half star movie experience for me. Um, I I don't think it's going to crest that four stars, uh, but my hunch is the quibbles. You're going to erase some quibbles in your mind and you might give it a four star. Am I right? The windmills of my mind, Pete, are spinning (laughs) so much. No, I'm right at three and a half and a like with this one. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Yeah, I'm a like too. Three and a half stars and a like. It's a lock, Andy. Wow, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. Uh, But it's funny because I think my three and a half is, I I think I like it more than your three and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we're, we're having more of a gradient than just agreeing on stars? That's right. That's right. My heart's more it's full of love. Really complicated. Oh my god! What are this re-ranking episode that we've been talking about? This is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be it nine is. hours of this nonsense. It's going to go forever. Jeez! Indeed, right. it will. Indeed, it will. What are we doing? Uh, what are we doing next week? Uh, we are doing the remake of this. Pete, big surprise! This, uh, I guess, we didn't <laughs> specify. This is the movies and and their remakes series that we're doing. Uh, we are looking at films from 1968 and their remakes. Actually, this is an interesting um, one, Pete, because this was one of our series that we um, we polled our Patreon supporters for. And um, some of the films were 1968 films with later remakes. Some of the films were earlier films with 1968 remakes. Um, none of those were picked. We ended up with two films from 1968 and their remakes. And uh, next week we're talking about the remake of this one from 1999. And it should be an interesting uh, journey to check that one out. That's the Pierce Brosnan, Rene Russo film directed by John McTiernan. 
I look forward to that. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. Nay, nay. <laughs> what are we doing there? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> That's too much. It just needed uh. to be a little big. <laughs> we talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put lists of movies together that are related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at thenextreel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental, as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always do it. Mm, and how? <laughs> uh, yes, they did. Uh, we've uh, we've scraped the bottom of the barrel for um, our, our, well, really not even our favorite reviews, but some reviews of Amazon of what uh, other people have said. And I've got one from Justine, uh, who watched the movie on VHS tape. Andy, VHS tape. Are you familiar with this format? Uh, it was around Tell in proximity more. to your letterbox or to your uh, uh, video discs. To your, uh, <laughs> oh, you. your, dis- your your vaunted discs, uh, although you didn't have to flip them every five minutes, so maybe that would not have been good for you. Anyway, Justine says after seeing this ter- the terrific Bronson Russo remake. Oh, Andy, she's setting the bar high. I wanted to see the original since they're always supposed to be better. This has to be one of the most idiotic movies ever made. It's not only that it's dated, but the story makes no sense. That Dunaway looks at some pictures of men who've gone to Europe recently and picks out McQueen as the robber. Can we believe that? And with no evidence, nothing to tie him to the crime, McQueen goes along with it and returns the money. Because some dumb blonde tells him he's guilty. Duh. This was even too dumb for the swinging 60s. I can't understand how people rave about this dumb movie. It lacks any real plot or suspense, and the chemistry between Dunaway and McQueen is about as enticing as two dead fish meeting. That's not (laughs) enticing, in case there was any concern. Two dead fish meeting, not enticing. Even in film. I, uh, people are strange. People are strange. (laughs) Why? What do you think? What do you think Justine got wrong in this review? Oh. Too dumb I, for the 60s, Andy. 50-year-old movie. I don't know. People. 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 Right, well, I've got on. a two-star, actually, by Troy. And Troy uh, has this to say. And it, it's a little <laughs> it's a little inappropriate, but here we go. A female detective gets the D from a thief and turns into a lovesick teenager. 
She violates her oath as a detective and destroys her career. That last bit happens after the movie ends, but it's obvious she will be punished for professional improprieties. She's a poor excuse for a cop. (laughs) But at least she gets an extra star. (laughs) She gets an extra star out of of Troy. Oh, my dear. All right. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>